When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is a proud member of the FanHub 100. Football without fans is nothing, so we've partnered with FanHub to put fans first. Search FanHub app to play your part in the journey. This is Big Wes, and you're listening to the 1865 Forest Ramble. You read... Hello and welcome, and thank you for joining us on the 1865 podcast. We've got a special interview for you today, talking to somebody who worked as a BBC journalist for 35 years, much of that time spent covering Nottingham Forest for BBC Radio Nottingham and for East Midlands Today. In a little while, we'll be talking to him about Forest's all-conquering team, almost, of the late 1980s, and then also his experiences of hosting Brian Clough's first ever radio phoning. But we'll start off with how Mark Shardlow got started in broadcasting. Hi, Mark. Great to, to speak to you properly at last. Um, we'll start then, really, because you, you grew up in Long Eaton. Uh, was it Forest that the team... You always supported growing up? (laughs) Well, there's a good question to start off the podcast. And will it be the shortest podcast in history? Um, Let me tell you, my first football match that I went to see as a probably six-year-old was at the City Ground. And it was Nottingham Forest 2, Fulham 2. I can remember it vividly, going with my uncle, who was a big Forest fan. Um... And when I look back a few years ago, I, I realised why some of my early favourite players were my early favourite players, because they all scored goals in that game. So people like uh, the wingers, Barry Lyons, Ian Story Moore, and for Fulham, Alan Clark, who went on to play for Leicester and Leeds and, and England. And Joe Baker, of course, was a big forest hero at the time. And I just, I just remember the excitement. I remember loving being part of the crowd. I remember the smells of the city ground still and uh, the half, the old halftime scoreboard and the programme and I loved everything about it. And my, my dad was a, a big footballer, but he, he didn't really have a team. So I got taken by him and my neighbours and my uncles to Notts County and to Derby County. And um, I didn't really support anyone as a, as a sort of 10-year-old, I don't think. I just loved football. Um, my, my favourite matches were at the city ground. I went to a Forest game midweek in the early 1970s when Forest were playing Arsenal and stood on the Bridgeford end, which was all standing then, of course. And this Arsenal team were the, the eventually the double winning team, which was unheard of really then. You know, they won the league and the FA Cup. And it was a midweek game and there were over 40,000 people there. It was thrilling to be there as a young kid, watching uh, players like Charlie George, 
who were like idols. Um, but uh, as a young kid, you got pushed to the front um, when you were standing watching. You, had, you sort of stood on a box so you could peer over uh, the barriers and see the match. Uh, and I got a bit of a crush at this game. I got taken over the barrier and I can remember distinctly being walked around the pitch by a St. John ambulance and through the tunnel, the players tunnel and past the changing rooms and into the St. John room. And it was, it was almost as good as being the match, watching the match and being in the tunnel uh, and seeing the changing rooms. Uh, I was fine and they sent me off and I just stood by the, the, the old uh, pylon waiting to be collected at the end of the game. And then I'm going to give you a third memory of Forest, if you're okay. You're right with all these memories going back in time. Uh, Sunday football in the 1970s. Um, and we got tickets on a Sunday, because my dad played on a Saturday, to see Nottingham Forest, who were probably about the same position as they are in the Championship or Division 2, as it was then, against Manchester City, who, whilst not as great as the current Manchester City side, still had fantastic players, you know, icons like Francis Lee and Colin Bell. And uh, Dennis Law was playing for them. I don't think he played in, in this game. So Forrest were there to be beaten. But in this rare Sunday game, and it was, I think it was Forrest's second ever Sunday game. It was an experiment. Forrest beat Manchester City 4-1. <laughs> and uh, a player who to this day uh, I would put down as one of the greatest that I, I've seen uh, watching local football, and that was Duncan McKenzie. Duncan McKenzie tore uh, apart this Manchester City side. It was absolutely breathtaking stuff. And again, I think there were 40,000 people there to watch it. And McKenzie was probably a bit like John Robertson, really. You know, he smoked 40 a day or 50 a day. <laughs> day. He'd been sent out on loan. He didn't really cut it. But on his day, he was brilliant. And after this game, he, he became a bit of a cult hero. He used to jump over minis. I think he lived in Borowash. And Football Focus did lots of stuff with him. And he, he, there's a famous Football Focus where he jumped over a mini. And he became a, a Brian Clough signing at Leeds United. Mm. When Cloughy was at Leeds, you know, sort of a lot of parallels with, with uh, John Robertson, I think. And he went on to play for, for Everton and... and um, was you know he's he's always much loved wherever he's gone and i saw him speak a few years ago and he's brilliant mm. however I, i'm only delaying your question i noticed you haven't actually <laughs> answered it yet <laughs> so on account of the fact that my uncle uh had a season ticket for derby county that he donated to me and my dad for a couple of years and that i went to see derby county on a season ticket for two teenage years. And the fact I was born in Derby and I lived in Derbyshire, then I admit to being a Derby County fan. Is that the end of the podcast? Uh, but I will say this, let me say this though, before you speak again. Actually, I'm a rare one in that actually the second score that I would look for on a Saturday would be Nottingham Forest. And it pains me to think of the last decade or even 20 years and, you know, both these clubs that should be up there with 30,000, 35,000 watching and seeing some thrilling football have struggled so much. And, of course, at the time of recording, it's quite possible that Derby are going to manage to stay up on, like, 43 points. So uh, it shows how the mighty have fallen, doesn't it? Oh, sad, 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 isn't it? You know, whichever way you look at it, I mean, we have banter between the teams, and I get that, but 
ultimately, you know, Forest, Derby, Leicester should all be in the Premier League and we should be having great Premier League derbies. That would be brilliant. Uh, we might move on to some of the themes there a little bit later, actually, because that idea about, you know, who are the top teams, those local rivalries. Um, now, obviously, you are famous for being in broadcasting as, you know, in front of the camera, behind the camera, behind the mic, editing suite, production, all of these kinds of things. So when you were young, did you always know that going into something to do with sports or something to do with broadcasting was where you were going to go? Um, I would say... Yes, I would say probably until the age of 10, I wanted to be a footballer or a cricketer. And if I couldn't be a footballer or cricketer, I'd like to be a pop star. Of course, by about 11, we all realised that we're probably not quite as good as football or cricket or singing as we thought or hoped. And then to me, the, the next most exciting thing would, was to, to, to watch or to commentate on sport. And I loved the great commentators of the day, uh, you know, the football commentators on the radio and on the TV. And I just loved um, journalism. I probably from the age of 11, I used to be standing outside the newsagent at six o'clock on a Saturday if I wasn't at a match waiting for uh, the Football Post. I don't know if you guys remember the Football Post, oh, yeah. but basically, yeah. yeah, it was a sort of Saturday evening paper. And it was remarkable, really, wasn't it? That, I don't know, you know how they did how it. They <laughs> do it. It's still a mystery to me. You know, it's 10 to 5. And these are the, you know, these are the old print days. It's 10 to 5, the match is finished. And at 6 o'clock in Long Eaton, um, the paper arrives with match reports. And I, re- and, uh, I read from cover to cover the Football Post, you know, from Forest Report on the front, Knots in the back, probably Mansfield and Derby in the middle, and then all the features and all the local league tables and everything. I spent years and years um, reading the Football Post. And, um, yeah, so I, I wrote my own articles, as, you know, kids do now, and blogging and stuff like that. I commentated off the TV. So... Yeah, I'd say probably from the age of 11 or 12, I knew what I wanted to do and I worked hard to try and get there. Okay. And as, as, a, as a young young man or a, young, a boy coming to a young man, who are the commentators that you would say kind of stick in your mind? Well, David Coleman, uh, I think, is iconic when it comes to, mm-hmm. to sports commentary because he changed really from the sort of stuffy old commentary that you probably hear you know if you go back in the archives just someone who you know if you listen to him now he probably stands up pretty well he's quite modern in the fact that you know the the commentary style that he introduced in the 1960s um and then uh i suppose i grew up really with um peter jones on the radio who was just a master really and if i could be anyone as a radio broadcaster i'd choose uh the great peter jones um, who, who sadly died early, but he was, you know, so many memories of sort of midweek matches on a crackly radio listening to European games with uh, Peter Jones and Brian Butler. Um, and uh, I suppose in their heyday, Mike Ingham and Alan Green, they probably, both of them, you know, faded out towards the end, but in their heyday, they were great commentators too. And as you mentioned uh, about that style that David Coleman, you know, I guess it, it moved from being kind of Pathé News to being a bit more, you know, bloke on his sofa with a, with a few tinnies. And so, um, but then on the other hand, uh, I, the conversation I've had many times is that for the last 20 years, Jonathan Pierce has been a fixture in, in our homes. And one of the things that 
I don't like about him is I think he is a bit too far that way. I don't know what you, your views are. Is that just a sign of the changing times? Well, he's reined it back a bit because when I started commentating, uh, Jonathan was, was commentating. If you're in the same commentary box as him, you could barely hear yourself. He really <laughs> gave, he really gave it some, well, he changed things, you know, he, he sort of, you know, when I, when I started in sports broadcasting in the mid eighties, I suppose he was at, uh, I think it was at Radio Northampton, they moved to Capital Radio yeah. and he just brought energy and, and excitement to commentary. He's developed a style. It's a bit barmite at times. He's probably toned it down over the years, but you know, his passion shines through. And just uh, last thing on, on this particular sort of topic about commentators as well is, um, do you think it's okay for commentators to offer their opinions as part of the commentary? Because for me, as a bloke in my early 40s, you know, the great thing about listening to, you know, your Brian Moores and your Barry Davises is that they told it you, they told you what was going on, but they painted a picture with words, but they didn't taint that with opinions they just told you what was actually happening um so you're talking tv or radio here what do you reckon um i'm mainly thinking about tv to be perfectly honest okay that's a good question and uh, i'm probably of the school that the commentator describes the action and the the pundits and the ex-players offer an opinion but i sort of feel that over the last few years we've all become better educated in football you know, we've with you know podcasts like this and and lots of more intelligent writing over the last decade or so. I think there's no reason why we can't offer an opinion. Should a commentator offer it? Well, it's probably it, you're probably going to put put some people off by doing it. Um, you've got to earn a bit of respect to be able to do that. So I'm I, I'll go with you. I I say yeah. Uh, probably not 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 for me. Not for me. Uh, which adds, it does have a different dimension as well when you're watching Premier League matches with VAR, aren't you? Because then, mm. then obviously the commentator has to, firstly, they've got to fill, bless them. But yes. then secondly, they, you know, when the decision is made, particularly for those ridiculous marginal offsides, then I guess you can't help but offer an opinion, can you? Yeah, I guess like for something like that, which is, is probably not about the technical aspect of football or the tactics or something like that, but it's, it's just, you know stupidity in some instances then i think yeah you you you're fair you're fair game we'll start then with um your broadcasting career now and 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 where it all began for you um and that was nottingham hospitals radio how did you first begin covering forest i understand you were trialing some quite pioneering commentary back in the day Oh, right. Well, um, yeah, Hospital Radio is, if you, you're not aware of Hospital Radio, it's still going strong. And actually, I think um, last year, I think Lee Curtis at the Evening Post raised some money for Nottingham Hospitals Radio so they could um, do the commentary from, from uh, Wembley when uh, Wembley tried to charge or whoever was charging too much money for, for a charity. Basically, it's a charity. It's full of volunteers. And the model in Nottingham was that actually you spent one day going around the wards and talking to patients and, you know, generally being a cheery voice. And then the other day you'd spend broadcasting. Um, most people playing records and request shows and stuff like that. Um, but I heard while I was sitting at home or something and there was an advert on Radio Trent as it was then that Hospitals Radio were looking for someone to start a sports department. 
I thought, oh, this is my dream job here. But you don't get paid, but I applied and I got the position and set up a, a, a sports commentary team, really. So we installed uh, lines into Forest and Notts County. And in those days, uh, there was no such thing as commentary um, anywhere, really, other than like BBC Radio, I think it was Radio 2 then, but the equivalent to Five Live, could do second half commentary on the top uh, Premier League equivalent match. So there was no local commentary. So for those in hospital who perhaps had a season ticket or couldn't get to the game, then this was their opportunity to listen to 90 minutes commentary on Notts County and Nottingham Forest. We did the cricket on a, a Sunday at Trent Bridge. Uh, we did the first ever ice hockey. So we used to cover the ice hockey when the Panthers sort of first started back in the 80s. Um, we did the Robin Hood Marathon, um, all sorts of stuff with some great technical uh, knowledge from mostly um, BT engineers uh, and a, a small team of broadcasters. So it was a fantastic opportunity, really, to, to without the pressure of uh, doing it for a, a job or for real, to, to learn the trade of broadcasting. And I did that for four years. Um, and I think my first match was 1981, Forest Southampton. Uh, Kevin Keegan, Alan Ball, Mick Shannon. Mm. 25 what surprised me um was the, were the crowds like 1981 at the start of that season 25,000 yeah. and this is you know after the second european cup win and and at the end of the season crowds were 15,000 yeah. that's a, i think what was happening what, what was happening in nottingham at that time why weren't people going to watch football so it was uh, to think you know 12 months earlier They've been the double European Cup win. And I know things change, you know, the, the, the new stand went up and players had to be sold and sort of signings like Peter Ward and Ian Wallace didn't really work out. Um, but I still can't believe that crowds dipped so low in, you know, with the, with the quality of that team, the, his, the recent history of that team and the quality of the opposition was incredible. It's a strange one, isn't it? I think... Um... Before we started recording, we were having a, dis- a bit of a discussion about about the importance of fans, and um, and you made the comment, Mark, off air that you know fans aren't to be fooled easily, are they? So um, ultimately, there's a lot of fans who will buy whatever the club put out if it's com- especially in these commercial days, shirts and merch and those kinds of things. But bottom line is, if they think they're being diddled, then they'll start voting with their feet in whatever way. So the fact that the club was in <laughs> big financial trouble despite uh despite being the european champions may have had something to do with it i wonder yeah you're probably right and i suppose you know you'd seen and you'd loved and you know you know how much uh forest fans past you know past present whatever loved that team just because of the you know the the, the miracle men and all the stuff that's gone on over the last three or four years they're still loved aren't they and to see some of those depart i suppose was a was a blow to fans but actually you know, hang on a sec, like this, this club was doing amazingly well. Um, yeah, I never quite work out what, what happened there. And it carried on for a few years, you know, even two or three years later, even that, you know, well, no, successful UEFA Cup campaign. Then the, I think the crowds were still like 13,000 on, on some occasions. Uh, obviously the big days, there were big crowds. Um, I was at, both legs of the Celtic game, famous Celtic game, 
um, which was incredible. But also, you know, it's I think often forgotten the game at the City Ground where where the match was stopped and there was a crush and the Celtic fans came on the pitch and uh, you know it's a precursor really to what would happen a few years later and then the Anderlecht match and all that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah, it was a, a big time, big big time of transition. And I suppose really, if if I had a regret about the hospital radio, is that why didn't I do it two years earlier and <laughs> see a team that won two European Cups instead of sort of team that was sort of in transition and, and fading away a little bit. And what were you doing alongside? Were you were you at college or were you working or? I was at Nottingham Trent. I mean, I got so in, into um, hospital radio, I was probably spending five, six days a week there. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, I neglected my A-level studies and uh, ended up staying in Nottingham because I loved being at the hospital radio. And I got a degree, would you believe, in accountancy. So uh, <laughs> so I was doing that degree. I worked for Boots for a year while still doing this. And then eventually in 1984. Um, I got a place on a journalism course in London and that's when I left hospital radio and um, really started, you know, my, my career of getting paid for watching sport, which is a fantastic job if anyone can get it. So it's, I've loved it all. And of course, the other thing that's quite interesting to me about that idea of hospital radio, you're establishing links with the clubs, you're getting to go to matches, do the commentary, other events. I'm guessing a lot of that was done by the old-fashioned pen and paper and actually writing to people and, and then finding out phone numbers and, and ringing up landlines. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Because that, that's all you had. It's a different era, isn't it? Yes, uh, I mean, uh, I wrote to um, Brian Clough to see if he'd give an interview, which, um, yeah, and I can remember uh, the letter coming back saying, uh, be delighted to, which I was absolutely shocked by. And had to phone his secretary, Carol, to make the arrangement. Mm. Um, probably 18, 19 at the time. Um, and, um, yeah, it was uh, probably the most terrifying moment of my life, walking down to the city <laughs> ground that day, not knowing what I was walking into. And, you know, Cluffy then, you know, the that would be like 81, 82. He was just like, we were still box office, you know, the mm. guy that was on you know, being impersonated by Michael, Mike Yarwood on a Saturday night or going on the Parkinson programme or being interviewed by David Frost and all that. So he he was just a superstar uh, that was wider than sports. So going going along to interview him with my tape recorder was a, a terrifying moment in my hospital radio days. And I think for, for any of our younger listeners, it's worth, worth pointing out that it's really difficult to to express exactly how much of a celebrity Brian Clough was. He wasn't just a football manager. He was everywhere, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, was, I said I was at Trent Polly and if they had, they, I remember some sort of, there was a big sort of students were all, you know, always protesting about something back in the day. But whatever they were protesting about, Cloughy seemed to turn up and join the protest. And um, the journalists at the Evening Post went on strike. And so he, he, he refused to speak to those put in their place. And he helped uh, set up a rival newspaper because the journalists, some journalists had been, no, they were sacked, weren't they? I think they were sacked for not, for, um, they tried to de-unionize the Evening Post and they sacked like the great sports writers they had at the time. And, mm. and, and, and Clough supported them. And, you know, he was, he, he, he was just involved in the city in many, many ways. And of course, 
he was like gold dust for chat shows like you know the big you know if you think of the equivalent today he'd be on graham norton he'd be on jonathan ross you know he would be like top of their list like the the a a list celebrity they wanted well and and you know i've heard you talking about this elsewhere but of course it's worth reminding ourselves and the footage is out there that i think was it via parkinson that he had the muhammad ali um intro and it's like that's just insane can you can you imagine that if that if that happened now it's like oh yes so chris hewton (laughs) being introduced by like the most famous sportsman in the world on a chat show (laughs) ever wasn't ever you know muhammad ali said i've heard of this guy in england called brian clough who's got a mouth bigger than me said ali or some words to that effect uh yeah that's you know the world's greatest ever sportsman introducing uh, Brian Clough on a chat show that's that's the level it was back then absolutely insane and so we have to ask because obviously you've covered there a little bit about how you know Clough was a man of contradictions wasn't he in terms of so he'd always be a man of the people he was famously he'd give people loads of time he would be very generous to people who he met on the street and so on but on, you know he gave with one hand and took with the other in some ways um but, you know, so the, the classic example of that and the one that I remember people always talking about when when I was younger was that, you know, he was a socialist who was a millionaire and wrote for The Sun. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, these, these things happen, don't they? Um, what was, was he everything that you hoped he would be? Um, he was actually, as an 18-year-old, as an he was um, welcoming. He was, he was friendly. He could see I was nervous, but... but described he said he said you look freezing rather than you look nervous so you look freezing he opened the drinks cabinet says warm me up poured me a second when i drank the first quickly it was whiskey i didn't drink whiskey i didn't know what what was going down my <laughs> neck but i didn't care uh, and he was charming he gave me plenty of time wished me well and uh it felt like nothing could be too much trouble for him um uh and you talked about the contradictions well it was probably well no definitely the longest interview that i had with cluffy in my career part of my phone in that we did um because he he was a great supporter of the underdog you know and and, and he he would i would sure knew that this was a leg up on my career and he was happy to help so yeah it was it was um uh, i was absolutely thrilling and he was delightful and again, it's just, a, it shows the contrast between, you know, then and now. I mean, I, admittedly, we are talking a long time ago, but, you know, in the last 20 years or so, when everything is so tightly controlled by clubs, media departments and PR teams and broadcast contracts and arrangements and so on, you know, how wonderful that, that he just answered, to, answered a letter from you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But uh, well, we'll come on to it later, but there are contradictions again uh, later on with that. I mean, uh, the other thing, though, I do remember, like, my first games going down there was the, the after-match press conference when you saw a, uh, a, 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 say, a nastier side to Clough and Taylor, but they felt that the, the elements of the press were stitching them up, and they certainly let them know that. You know, I was I was a bit shocked, really, at some of those press conferences like the the vitriol that was going back and forth it was like a behind the scenes world i hadn't seen or even imagined but um yeah in some cases there was no love loss and perhaps some of that was like the jealousy born by the fact that he was doing columns for certain newspapers giving stories to to certain newspapers but um 
Yeah, it was uh, at times there was no love lost between Clough and Taylor and some of the journalists that covered them. Thank you so much to Mark Shardlow for giving up his time for part one of this interview. In part two, which will be in your feed in a few days, you'll hear more about his highs and lows of commentating on Forest. You'll find out more about his experience of getting Brian Clough to do his first ever radio phone-in. And Mark will play a game of Guess That Red. Join us once again for part two of our interview with Mark Shardlow. Podcast Network.